journey series. And uh, we're actually using a booklet. If you've got it with you, you can grab that open to part two. Uh, We started part two last week. We're going to stay in part two for a couple of weeks. And part two talks about uh, the relationships that are uh, vital to the gospel. The gospel is all about relationships. And last week, we talked about opening the conversation that the, the idea of having a relationship with God or intimacy with God is the beginning of this journey. Okay, Prayer, communicating with Him, is how we establish that relationship. But we didn't just talk about prayer as a discipline. I mean, it is a discipline. It's where the conversation opens. But we talked about being constant in prayer. What it means to practice the presence of God. Learning to hear His voice and respond to Him. Whether that's individually or corporately, we need both of them. And that intimacy with God produces intimacy with others. In fact, if you go to part two of your book and you open to the the last page of that, there's a quote that you'll see where it says, advanced idea. I wish there were page numbers, but there's not page numbers. So the last page, there's this, this quote. It says, everything God desires to do in and through your life He will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with Him. Okay, if you don't have the booklet, maybe I'll read it again so you can hear it again. Everything God desires to do in and through your life, He will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with Him. So the idea of intimacy with God is very much joined to our relationships with other human beings. And it's out of that overflow of our relationship with Him that our relationships with others is seen. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus, very common passage. We, we talked about this one last week. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets... Hang on these two commands. You can't separate relationship with God from relationship with others. In fact, if our relationships with others are off, there's a problem in our relationship with God. It doesn't mean we don't have a relationship with God. I mean, if you remember when Jesus was sitting with the Pharisees and the woman that could not contain herself and was just lavishing her love on Jesus by pouring uh, perfume on him, by weeping and wetting his, his feet with her tears, she was just overwhelmed and the religious leaders all sat around the table nice and poised yeah, and judging. And Jesus said, this woman has been forgiven much. And the one who's been forgiven much will love much. The overflow will be there. And here's the the kicker. There's not one of us that has been forgiven more than the other. All of us have been forgiven the same. But some of us fail to recognize it because maybe we grew up in church or maybe we've been saved so long we forgot the wretch that we were when Jesus rescued us. And so because of that, we lack the understanding and the overflow of our lives might be a little bit, but it's not very deep. And the expression of our love for Him is really the litmus test for how deep we've received His love. It's tied together. In John chapter 17, another verse we looked at last week, I pray, Jesus said, on behalf of, not on behalf of these only, meaning His disciples, but also for all of those who believe in Me through their message. That's us. Everyone who believes. That they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may, so also may they be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, churches that are struggling to be one are probably not one in Him, together. This is why we talked about the importance of corporate prayer. If we aren't praying together, the more likelihood of us separating is going to be present. Couples who pray together regularly don't divorce. Plain and simple. Churches that pray together regularly don't split. Because in those moments of prayer, our hearts are melded together. It's when we bow our heads and say, Father, do a work in us that we cannot do. It's not about trying to get everything to the place where we all agree on all the topics or we have enough potlucks that we all know each other very well and we fellowship together. There's a supernatural joining of hearts that have to take place. 
Hopefully at your wedding, the pastor that presided over the ceremony talked about that. When you come together in a wedding and you say, Father, join us together. There's a supernatural thing that's going to take place that you just can't, you, you can't describe, you can't make it happen. God does it. But that doesn't mean that we have no responsibility to live that out after the marriage or after we come together in the body of Christ. We've been talking about it in the forms of tables. And so a restoration church for us, everything is a table. And we've talked about the table of intimacy that God has prepared for us, that we have to sit at all the time. Yeah, this is your daily devotional time. This is daily quiet time, but it's being constant. I have to imagine myself every moment of every day sitting at this table with my father. That's when, so that when I get mistreated, I don't have to retaliate because I'm sitting at a table that he's prepared for me in the presence of my enemies, and I can entrust that he's going to be at work in that. I don't have to defend myself. He can be my defense. Because if I start defending myself, I will have to keep defending myself. But if I let him be my defender, he will constantly be my defender. David had an understanding of this. He talked about it all throughout the Old Testament. And he, he was the man after God's heart. There were things that David understood in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that you and I don't even fully understand in the New Covenant. Uh, man, he had a picture into some stuff. And this is one of those concepts. David didn't fight for the throne when Absalom rose up to take it. He says, if God is finished with me, I'll walk away. I don't have to take my rightful place as king. I'll let God take that. And God did. And David didn't like how God did it. He didn't want his son Absalom to be killed. But that's what God chose. And Absalom suffered and David was restored to the throne. When we put our hands, or we put our lives in the hands of God, that's what happens. And out of the overflow of that table of intimacy is where we come into the table of communion with believers in the body of Christ. Whether it's the people in this room, the people that are part of Restoration Church, or anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ and has put faith in Him. We're joined with them at the table of communion. The table of connection we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the ways that we react or respond or connect with the people outside of the kingdom, the people that we've actually been commissioned to reach. And we'll, we'll get to that when we get there next week. But I promise you, anywhere there's a breakdown in human relationships, there's a breakdown in the, the vertical relationship somewhere as well. And I know that most of us are going to say it has to do with that other person. But I promise you, there's something that the Holy Spirit will do in our hearts if we let Him. As much as it depends on me, live at peace with all people. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. You don't have to worry about what other people need to do. You worry about what the Holy Spirit says we need to do. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about bearing with one another, how it is to sit at this table of communion. And we're going to look at a passage in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at the context of that for just a second. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, I don't have it on the screen, but if you read it later in your Bible, the Apostle Paul is talking about understanding the love of God, being rooted in the love of God. You're never going to be able to fully understand it, but if you begin to understand how wide and how long and how high and how deep His love is for you, it's going to change everything. You're going to be established, you're going to be firm, you're going to be rooted. You've got to know the love of God. And then he goes into chapters 4 and 5 and he talks about the way that that love overflows. The way that it shows up in our relationships with other people and even into our family relationships and into our community relationships. And so all of that stems from understanding the love of God. When we understand it more, it overflows more. You're never going to get to the place where you understand it fully. So it's good, like Christy said, for us to take moments to receive because as we receive more, we can give more. But if we don't receive, we've got nothing to give. Well, actually, we do have lots to give, but it's not good stuff. Okay, that's where we give out of frustration. We snap at each other. Okay, when we get filled up with his love, that's where the overflow of our hearts looks more like him. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, this hinge verse, receiving from God's love, understanding our identity in Christ, all of that, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now we're coming into chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life 
worthy of the calling you've received. Remember what the calling we've received is? Do good, even if it means suffering. Imitate Jesus. That's our calling. Okay? Our calling is not being a teacher. Our calling is not being a pastor. Our calling is not being a prophet. Our calling is to do good and imitate Jesus. That's our number one calling. And then he says this, be completely humble and gentle. That, that's inferring this is a process. Because some of us would be tempted to be like, I'm humble. I'm gentle. I mean, I, I always get a kick out of the verse where Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth in a book written by Moses. Um, but some scholars believe that maybe Joshua added that later as a commentary, but Moses himself didn't write that. But there's nothing wrong with understanding that you're the most humble person on the planet. But even if you're the most humble person on the planet, you're not completely humble yet. It's a process. You're, we can always grow in our humility. We can always grow in our gentleness. Be patient. We can always grow in that. Amen. But don't dare pray for it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us here in this passage is, unity comes by the Spirit. We've already talked about that. It's, it's from Him. We cannot make unity happen. But when He brings it into our lives, when we accept Christ and someone else accepts Christ, He unifies us. Now, it's up to us to maintain or to walk out that unity. Well, how do we walk out that unity? Well, I'm glad you asked that because he tells us exactly how we're supposed to do that. And he says, first, you've got to be completely humble. Humility has everything to do with how we view ourselves and how we view others. I have to view myself as one being totally wretched apart from him. Like, apart from God, there is no good thing in me at all. But in Him, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am a son of God. I am made completely righteous because of my faith in Him. And so I do not live in guilt. I do not live in shame. I do not live in condemnation. I know who I am because of my faith in Jesus Christ. I've got to know who I am. That's humility. But it also recognizes who other people are. And what happens is we tend to see other people through a different lens than we see ourselves. We tend to judge other people by how they act and we judge ourselves by our motives. That means we give ourselves a little more grace than we give other people. And we, that can't be. We've got to remember who we were before Christ made us who we are. And that will keep us from making sure that we don't treat others as if we are better than them. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, It is by the grace given to me, I say to each of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. We have to remind ourselves daily that the reason we are not consumed today is not because I behave myself, but it is the mercy of God. The reason that I do anything right or accomplish anything good is by the grace of God. It has nothing to do with my ability, my goodness, my strength. It's all from Him. It's all the grace of God. And we tend to forget that. When the people of God were going into the promised land, Moses warned them, when you get in there, don't forget who brought you here. Don't look around and start thinking you did this. Don't think this was because you were better than the other nations. God chose you and he set you apart. None of this is on you. All of this is on him. Remember that. Because if you remember that, you're going to treat other people correctly. You're going to remember you were slaves and God redeemed you. So you're going to treat foreigners and slaves among you in the right manner. 
Yeah, this is in the Old Covenant. This is what God taught them all the way back then. They didn't do a very good job of learning it. We don't always do a very good job of learning it either. Jesus told a parable about a servant who had been forgiven a debt, like a million-dollar debt, in Matthew chapter 18. And he was overwhelmed. He just was grateful, went out, found somebody that owed him about $10,000, and threw that one in prison until he would pay back everything that he owed. When the master heard about it, he took the one that had been forgiven the large debt and threw him in prison and said, how could you not have been merciful after I gave you mercy? We, we have to live in this tension of understanding who we are in Christ. Our identity is secure. It is founded on what Christ has done for us, but also remembering exactly who we were before. Because when we forget who we were before, we tend to be critical of those who do not measure up to what we think we are. Whether they're in the church or whether they're in the world. And here's the the bottom line. I'm not better than anyone. We're the same. And you're not better than me. We're the same. Love your neighbor who is like yourself is the reminder to us. Paul goes on and says, not only should we cultivate that humility, but we should cultivate gentleness. Because here's the thing, there comes a time when we have to have accountability with one another. We have to sometimes point things out in each other's lives or correct one another. It's in the scripture. We shouldn't shy away from this in the body of Christ. But Galatians chapter 6, brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. I've seen a lot of correction done, not in a spirit of gentleness. I've been on the receiving end of a lot of correction that was not done in a spirit of gentleness. And ultimately, when that happens, you have to guard your own heart, and you have to not retaliate, and you have to allow the Holy Spirit to filter that message so that whatever you needed to hear, you hear, and the part that maybe was incorrect because it wasn't gentle, you let go. And if you can't let it go, then you go to that person and you have a conversation in a spirit of gentleness to be restored to them. Not to put them in their place, to be restored to them. That's the point of correction in the body of Christ. Goes on to say, Pay close attention to yourselves so that you're not tempted to. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Jesus taught on this same thing in Matthew chapter 7. We kind of misunderstand the part where it says not to judge, and we think that that means we should never point out anything in anyone's life, but that's not what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, because he goes on to say in verse 3, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? What Jesus is saying is every time you look at someone and you see a flaw, Keep in mind that what you're not seeing is you are at least as equally flawed as they are. So when you go to them to point it out or to to help them overcome that, do it with gentleness because you are just like them. Oh, but Pastor Tom, I would never be like that. Well, you are, just maybe not in the same places. And your sin is just as egregious before the Holy Father as theirs is. There's not levels of sin Like, we like to make levels of sin, but there's not. We've all offended him. All like sheep have gone astray, each one to themselves. But now we've returned to him, and it's by his grace. So we keep that in mind so that we know how to deal with that person. Remove the beam from your own eye. That doesn't mean you have to live perfect. It just means you have to be aware so that you go in the right spirit to deal with what's in their eye. Then he tells us that we're to be patient. I don't know if we're fully aware of how patient God is with us. The scripture tells us that he is slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, don't get get me wrong. There will come a day where judgment comes. I mean, it's true. There is a day set when all men will be judged because of what they did with Jesus. They either accepted his sacrifice or they rejected him. But, Understand this, James says in James chapter 1, verse 19. 
You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. We cultivate patience. Why? Because that's, this is who our Father is. This is who our Father is. I was reading one of the prophets this week, and um, it was just in my regular reading for the morning, and uh, God was talking to them about the way they were treating others. You're, you're mistreating others. You're, you're speaking of them in an in, in evil way. And because I stayed silent, he said, you thought I was just like you, but I'm not. And now I'm coming in judgment. Just because God doesn't correct us when we gossip about other people doesn't mean he's okay with it. It's pretty clear that no unwholesome talk should come out of our mouths. It's black and white. None. And what happens in our culture today is we just love to put others down. But well, It's religious. We're sharing our prayer requests or our prayer needs. And there's just so much of it. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. And that leads us to how he's, he's wrapping up this section by saying, bear with one another. Bear with one another. That word to bear with means to endure through difficulty or unpleasant times. And as Marv told me today, cheerfully endure through difficult times and unpleasant times. Not just endure, I'm going to put up with that one. I'm putting up with that person over there. No, in the right spirit. God, I'm going to put up with them. I'm going to bear with them because I fully recognize that somebody's bearing with me in the same manner. You're bearing with me in the same manner. Like, that's why we do this. This is how we work it out in the body of Christ. We live in a culture, though, where we choose relationships based on preference. We choose churches based on preference. We choose jobs based on preference. I mean, this is a culture where most marriages were arranged. You didn't pick who you were going to marry. So you, you arranged this relationship, this marriage, and then you just had to bear with that person. I mean, praise God. Let's go back there. Um, but, and I'm, I'm not against, I'm not literally saying we should go back there. I'm not against choosing a life partner. I'm not against choosing what church you attend or what job you have. But the moment we start to get difficulty, we run. We run from marriage. I, married, I must have married the wrong person. No, no, you must not have. Well, that church, man, I just, I, I just, I don't, I don't feel like I belong there. That job, if I could just get a different job, because then I, and we run from those things, never stopping to say, Holy Spirit, are you trying to chisel off areas of my life in this place, in this relationship, in this job? I mean, is there something I need to learn? Or, I mean, is it just the rest of the world that's just got to learn some stuff? I mean, we don't ever say it that way, but we run from anything that creates friction, tension, difficulty in our life, and we're like, you know, I'm the, I, I can't be the problem. Those people are the problem. And yet the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's not on the screen, but Paul says that God places each part where he wants it to be. And imagine God puts you in a body that maybe rubs you the wrong way. Why would he do that? Well, because that's the way he gets those rough edges off of our lives. And by the way, he really can't put you in a perfect body because one, they don't exist. And two, when, once he put us there, we'd ruin it. Some of you will get that later. And so we have to make sure that we're walking in humility gentleness, patience, endurance, that we're staying at the table, if you will, of communion with our brothers and sisters in Christ. A few months ago, we had a guest speaker by the name of Lynn Lapka. And as a part of one of his teachings, he introduced us to, to some circles. And uh, I've been doing some research on these circles. I loved it. He actually said it was a very old teaching that he's had for a number of years. Didn't plan to present it to us, but he presented it to us. Well, just this last week, as I was getting this message ready and I was thinking about those circles and bringing them back in because they fit this conversation so well, uh, some, a friend of mine introduced me to a podcast and said, hey, you should listen to this episode. I'd love to know your thoughts on it. Well, the episode was an interview with um, David Platt. David Platt has written a new book called Don't Hold Back. And in it, he talks about three buckets 
and how we walk in unity in the body of Christ by keeping everything in the right bucket. Bucket, circle, however you want to look at it, it's all over the place. But I put this together, and if you want to throw that up on the screen, this is called the unity circles. That's going to be up on the screen for a long time. If you want to take a picture of it, you can. Uh, I'm not saying it's totally right. You may see it in different forms. But this is what Lynn kind of taught us. And I think it really helps us to understand how we walk in unity or keep unity in the body of Christ. And it starts in that small circle. What unifies us in the body of Christ is the core. And the only thing that's in the core is Jesus. Maybe not just Jesus, but he is the word, so just Jesus. We'll say that. So that means the life, and the life of Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. I cannot be in communion with people that think Jesus was a good man. Now, I can connect with them. I can sit at that table. We'll talk about that next week. But we can't sit at the table of communion unless you agree Jesus was the Son of God, fully human, came to this earth, gave his life as a ransom for my sin, your sin, was raised to life again so that you and I could be restored to relationship with the Father and walk in resurrection power right now. And he has given us the Word of God. Okay? He is the Word of God. And that Word has full authority in our lives. That's the core. If you believe that, we're at the table of communion together. The Spirit unifies us because we believe those things. The Spirit cannot unify us if we don't believe those things. They might be good moral people. They might be fine people to have dinner with. But we're not sitting at the table of communion. Okay? And this is, not, this is for our understanding's sake. Please don't go around telling people we're sitting at the table of connection, not communion. Okay? I want you to understand what table you're sitting at. But if you tell someone you're not at the table of communion, you might as well not be at any table with them because you're not going to be able to have a conversation with them. Okay? You understand who you're with. And if we are the same in that core, then we're at that table. Okay? When we move out from that, we believe that the Word of God has full authority in our lives, okay? But what that looks like as we live it out sometimes looks a little different. So we move to the next circle, which I called confessions. You could call it doctrines. You could call it beliefs. And what we do in this circle is we debate. And some of you hate that word. Please think of it in a positive way. Uh, by the way, what we do in the inner circle is we die, Okay, so we die for those things. If someone says, Jesus is not the Son of God, sorry, that's a hill I'm going to die on. He is. Okay? The, the second circle out, this is where we debate. And debate is not a dirty word. Debate is where you and I have a conversation where we actually both try to come to a greater understanding of truth. Debate is not me trying to get you to see where you're wrong and I'm right. That's not debate. True debate is both of us going in in a spirit of humility that says neither of us is fully right. So let's figure out what right is together. And let's have a conversation where we, we hash it out, but we stay connected because the core never changes. So at Restoration Church in the Assemblies of God, we have what we call 16 fundamental truths. These are our doctrines. These are our core view, view, beliefs. This is what unites us maybe in this local body. But maybe not everyone believes all of them fully. But we're still in unity because the core never changes. Everything in the second circle is debatable. Everything in the second circle is debatable. What you think about end times, what you think about baptism, what you think about communion, what you think about the Holy Spirit, all of it is debatable. And so we can have conversations, and when we disagree, we can stay united because the core never changes. You'll find churches that have different values in this circle as well. At Restoration Church, we believe in reaching the lost. 
whether that is the people in our neighborhood, whether that is people in our community, whether that's our co-workers, or whether that's the unreached people groups around the world. We will never shy away from taking an offering called Global Outreach because we believe, as a church, God has commissioned us to take the gospel to every person on this planet. And when there are people willing to go live in another country where there's less than 1% of the population who has heard the gospel, then you and I ought to be praying and writing a monthly check so they can live there and do what we've been called to do on our behalf that's reaching the lost and that's what we do we also believe in equipping the saints for ministry we believe in putting things in your hands or teachings in your hands where you can share your faith with others where you can learn how to pray for people where you can learn to operate in the manifestation gifts of the spirit because you have not been called to come and sit in a pew for 90 minutes chair in for 90 minutes and then just go out and do whatever you want to do you've been called to be here to be equipped so that as you go out this week you build the kingdom and that's equipping the saints but here's the thing the question is are you equipable because you can't equip what's not equipable just just a thought We believe in abiding in Christ. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about the constant interaction with the Lord. We've talked about conforming to His image. We believe in planting churches, whether that's starting a brand new church or partnering with someone else to start a brand new church or even coming alongside of established churches. I believe this church has an apostolic commission. What that means is that I believe we've been commissioned to be a uniter of the body of Christ in this community and around the world. Making sure that people know if your core is our core, we're at the same table. Now, we may think differently in that second circle. We may not be able to do everything together, but we are on the sidelines cheering you on. And if we can write a check to help you, if we can do something to benefit you, we will. Because we understand the kingdom is far bigger than our church. And we will sit at a table with anyone that has the same core that we have, and we will call you brothers and sisters. That's what I mean by apostolic commission. I also believe as a church, we are about serving others about working for the peace and prosperity of our city, helping the poor, the neglected, the hurting, whether it's in our own community or around the world, we want to make a difference in helping people. Those are our core values. That should not be the first time you've ever heard them. But that's what unites us. Now, some people will leave a church because the confessions of that church don't line up with what they believe. They need to go somewhere where they feel like they're, they're... their confession lines up better praise god just when you do that don't do it as if you're leaving because of a core problem too many times people leave a church and they do it quietly well i'm just going to sneak away i'm not going to tell anyone or i'm going to do it because i'm mad about something stop it don't do that if you feel like you need to go to a different church where the the second circle is better Go to that second circle church. Because here's the thing. If you come to this church and you can't get in the second circle with us and you're just grumpy all the time, you're not helping yourself. You're not helping us. So get in a a circle where you can be happy. Or just get happy in this circle. Because we'd love you to be here. We just want you to be happy. Praise God. All right. Then we have our outer circle. The outer circle are our convictions. These are personal things. And here's what we do here. We discuss them. We discuss them. These are styles. The music I listen to. The clothing I wear. The movies I watch. The worship styles I prefer. The television programming I'm a part of. Whether or not I drink alcohol. Whether or not I gamble. Whether or not I have a tattoo. Whether or not I believe creation is okay or not. Sorry, cremation, not creation. We all believe in creation. <laughs> whether who I vote for, what political party I'm a part of, whether I think vaccines are good, whether I think the elections are okay, what country I'm from, what nationality I'm a part of, those are all in that outer circle. Okay? And those things are discussion points only. Never forget that. Far too many churches and believers right now are being divided by outer circle problems. What happens is, when we start at the outer circle and we try to make our way in, we become religious. Outer circle in, religious. 
Spiritual people work from the inside out. Jesus is the core, and then everything else comes out of that. We're trying to make everybody line up in agreement on every topic. And here's the thing. I think outer circle-wise, everybody of Christ should have differences of opinions in the outer circle. I mean, otherwise, if we're all the same, we're, we've got something wrong. We need each other to make sure we're seeing everything from a better perspective, a fuller perspective. So why would God bring that person? Why would God bring that nationality? Why would God bring that political party person into our church for you? Praise God. Thank Him for it. And if their core, I don't know how their core can be the same. If their core is the same, sit at the table of communion with them and don't get up. This is what maintains the unity of the Spirit. But it starts by staying at the table of intimacy. You and I have to stay at the table of intimacy if we have any hope of staying at the table of communion with one another. And so as you go through this week, here's a question um, that I want you to ponder. I want you to think about. How can I be more constant at the tables of intimacy and the tables of communion? How can I be more constant at the tables of communion and the tables of intimacy. For some of you, if your connection to this body is the 90 minutes you sit in that chair on Sunday morning, that's not enough. It's not enough for you and it's not enough for us. Because you have something to offer that we need and we will not be complete without you doing it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it looks like. But nobody is called to sit in a seat for 90 minutes once a week and be connected to a body. There's got to be a greater level of connection. We can text each other, call each other, pray for each other throughout the week, write cards to each other. I don't know what it looks like, but there has to be a greater level of connection than Sunday morning. Somewhere along the line, it has to involve prayer because the only way you and I are going to stay connected is if the Spirit unites us. So what does it look like to be more constant for us in this body at the table of communion and the table of intimacy. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your communion cup, if you will. This is how we're going to end today. And we don't want any music. Please don't find music. Because I want, I want us to understand, like when I grew up and it was communion time, the lights got low. And I mean, I, I was born in 1975. So this wasn't for all those people that are like, why are we having all the lights low? Um, they were turning the lights down in my church in the 80s. So I don't know what your church was doing, but like it was as if the Holy Spirit moved better when the lights were down. And anytime the pastor said, gather your communion elements, his voice would change. Gather your communion elements. Jesus. And now here's the thing. I am not mocking this at all. Please understand me. Uh, I'm not trying to make light of this moment, but I want you to understand this moment is not tied to how my voice sounds. It's not tied to the lighting. It's not tied to whether or not someone is playing the, the Holy Spirit chord over there. This moment is all about a choice. It's a recognition of what this represents and what should the overflow of my life be as a result. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, starting in verse 17. In the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you as you meet as a church. To some extent, I believe it. But of course, <laughs> I guess sarcasm is okay. There must be divisions among you so that you know that some, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. The Apostle Paul and his sarcasm. Verse 20, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Some of you are in a hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry and others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, certainly I will not praise you for this. For I will pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So, anyone who eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. If you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if you would examine yourselves, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves. When you meet together, I'll give you instructions of this matter after I arrive. So what's happening is the Apostle Paul is he's calling their bluff. Communion for them wasn't a tiny little cup and a little bit of a cracker. Communion for them was an entire feast. It was a love feast. It was excessive. But what was happening is the rich were eating before the poor could arrive, and the rich were eating all of the good stuff so that the poor really didn't have much left when they ate. And the excuse they were giving was that we were hungry. And Paul's like, if you're really hungry, eat at home. I'm calling your bluff. You're doing it because you don't care about each other. And the reason that some of you are sick and dying is because you don't recognize the body of Christ that you're even drinking. You haven't received His love. And how do I know that? Because it's not overflowing in your life in the love that you have for one another. Now, this isn't a callback to the fact that we have to have these types of feasts. But how do we apply this in our situation? Because when I was growing up, what we would do with the, the, the lights down so no one would see, so that we could focus... What unconfessed sin do you have in your life? If you have unconfessed sin in your life, absolutely, you ought to confess it in this moment. You should recognize what Christ has done, not so that you could live in sin, but so you could be freed from sin, so confess it. But what Paul is talking about is not our unconfessed sin. He's talking about the level of overflow of how we're treating one another. So what does that look like in our modern church? Do we actually engage with the body of Christ? Are we being constant at the table of communion? Or are we just, you know, it's really all about what I need, how I can be served, what's in it for, for me? And that's what he's talking about in this moment. And he's saying, if you fully understand what you're drinking right here, on the night Jesus was betrayed, before he poured himself out, as a sacrifice, he did this to remind them, when you understand this, you'll get this right. But when you don't understand this, you don't get this right. See, I don't, I, I don't know why these people are, are weak and sick and dying. I mean, is God killing them because they're not doing it right? I doubt it. I don't, I don't see that from the Apostle Paul. But here's what I understand. If you don't if you don't fully understand what Christ has done for you, it can't be applied to your life. You've got to receive it. You've got to confess the name of Jesus. You've got to, and if you can't receive it, you won't give it. And if you don't give it, you're not receiving it. I mean, these are so tied together. And if it's not overflowing in my life, I don't understand it. I'm not receiving it. And so sometimes the ability to receive it is tied to the ability to release it. And that's why the apostle, or that's why Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Understand, it's a flow that has to begin to happen. And when you understand what He's forgiven you of, there will be nobody you'll be able to hold the fence against, because you've understood fully what He's done for you. It'll flow out of you. Now, my desire today is not to make you feel guilty, but it's to help you understand a sober moment of what we're about to do. Because in just a moment, I'm going to stretch you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. We're going to partake of these elements. We're going to ask God to help us understand them. And then we're going to act it out. We're going to pray for each other. And what I'm going to ask you to do after we take communion is just go to someone else in the room 
and pray a blessing over them. Just pray a blessing. It doesn't have to be a, a long, drawn-out prayer, but thank you, thank God for, for putting you together with this person in the body of Christ. I'd love it if they weren't someone we were comfortable doing it with, but I'll take whatever I can get. Because just thank God for putting them in this body and then bless them in the name of the Lord. It doesn't have to be long. But listen for what the Holy Spirit might say. And maybe a specific blessing will come to mind. Maybe a specific scripture will come to mind. And even pray for yourself that you would recognize your place at the table of communion in an even better way. That's what I'm going to pray for us today. And so, and I will put music on when you pray for each other so that it kind of covers it up so that you'll be able to pray and not be a self-conscious. You're welcome. But here's the thing. This moment is a sacred moment. Absolutely. Sacred moment. But don't strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Don't dim the lights. Don't confess all of your unconfessed sin. Don't like play soft music, get all somber, and then not walk in relationship with the body of Christ. Because then all we've done is strain out gnats and miss the whole point. And so, Father, thank you for bringing us together at the table of communion. Jesus, we're here today because of you. The only reason we're here today is because of you. still so overwhelmed by the fact that you, even before the foundation of the world, were crucified for us. Before you ever said, let there be light, you knew what this would cost you. And you were willing to pay that price for us. Jesus, you came as the perfect example of how we should live. Laying down our rights, not retaliating, entrusting ourselves fully to the Father, receiving identity as sons and daughters, living out the kingdom everywhere we go. Thank you for being our example. Thank you for giving your life in our place. The punishment that was upon you has brought us peace. It's brought us forgiveness. It's brought us healing. And Holy Spirit, I know today I don't understand it. I mean, I, I do. I just know that I need to understand it more fully because I know this last week that people press, pressed my buttons and I know what flowed out of me in that moment. I know what, what happened in that moment, what response came out. I know the self-righteousness and the pride and the arrogance that came to my mind because I'm better than that. And I know that that's not true. And I need to understand more fully today what it is you've done for me. So that this week, when I'm faced with those same moments, out of that overflow of the understanding you give me in this moment, something different will come out. I want to imitate you. I want to live like you. And I know that all around this room and even those watching online, God, I know that's the prayer and cries of their hearts. And so Holy Spirit, in this sacred moment, as we partake of the bread, as we partake of this cup, and as we, as we remember what you've done for us, we need you to take it further than that. We need you to unlock our understanding in a way it never has before. Help us to recognize more fully the sacrifice you made for us. And then help us to bless one another. Holy Spirit, direct who we go to in this moment. Give us something that we can bless them with. You know the needs of every heart in this room. And so help us to be a blessing to one another at this table of communion. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to partake of those the, the bread the, and the, the juice, if you would. And if you would go ahead and put up that title screen, it's got some music on it. I'm going to ask you to slip out from where you are. We're going to take just a few minutes.
and then we'll dismiss in a, in a prayer. But for, just find someone that you can pray with, pray over, and just bless them. Just bless them for just a couple minutes. you're still praying, just continue to pray. If you're already finished, uh, feel free to be dismissed. We're just going to let it uh, be in this atmosphere that we're going to dismiss you. And so God bless you as you go. Thank you for being here today.